Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello, and welcome to Venture Stories from Village Global. I'm Ann Duane, co-founder and partner here at Village. Today, we talk tokenization with David Snyder of Lit Protocol and Steve McKeon of Collab Currency. David Snyder founded Lit Protocol to let companies, creators, and DAOs grant access to content, software, and data using tokens, NFTs, and blockchain identity as keys. It's decentralized access control. David's been active in the blockchain space since first purchasing Bitcoin in 2014. Steve McKeon is a partner at Collab Currency and a finance faculty member at the University of Oregon. Collab has completed nearly 100 investments in Web3 companies and protocols over the past four years across infrastructure, DeFi, NFTs, and DAOs. Well, David, let's kick off with you. For those who are unfamiliar, what is LIP Protocol and what does it enable? Absolutely. Uh, so LIP Protocol is a decentralized access control protocol. Um, and so as a decentralized protocol, essentially that means it is a network of computers and the service provided by this network is the ability to check the blockchain for some credentials, such as does a user own an NFT or are they a member of a DAO? The protocol can check this credential in a decentralized way and then also provision an access key to a user when they meet that credential for them to decrypt some content, view some live stream, or access some service. And we can get into some of the details about the architecture. Great. Well, and actually, could you give um, maybe an example of a use case, a specific use case that or a customer? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two layers uh, that the protocol is being used today. One is at the application level, and then the other is at the infrastructural level. So an example at the application level is there is an integration between Lit Protocol and a service called GatherTown, which is a, a spatial social space for kind of walking around and having events. And the integration between Gather and Lit enables token-gated spaces. Let's say somebody is holding a conference inside of GatherTown, and to enter a specific room inside of that platform, you would need to hold an NFT. And the checking of that NFT and then uh, the validation and then passing that user uh, basically an access token so they can get into that room is managed by the lit protocol and that's all kind of happening underneath the hood the user just walks up to the door signs a message with their wallet the validation and the key provisioning happens and then they can go ahead and enter and the other place where lit protocol is being used is more at the infrastructural level uh, so there's an example of an application called orbis club uh, essentially they've built something akin to a Twitter or a Discord clone using entirely D-Web, decentralized web infrastructure. And in the context of that platform, they have token-gated groups. And you may have seen token-gated groups on Discord before, but what is unique here is that there's no centralized server managing the backend in Orbis Club. It's running on a network called Ceramic, and underneath that is Arweave. And so uh, Ceramic is providing the credentialing around who can write to that data stream and lit protocol is providing the service around who can read that data stream or more specifically decrypt that data stream 
And this is extremely exciting because this is an application that is using the D-Web stack, both decentralized and encrypted, which means that the service provider can't see what's going on. And if the service provider disappears for any reason, all that information is still there. And just like distributed uh, apps, somebody could just set up a new front end using the same set of tooling and the users could continue their conversation. Very helpful to bring that to life, David. And Steve, you're an investor in uh, Lit Protocol. Can you talk a little bit more about what made you invest? Sure. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, every project we look at, you know, we're typically investing um, sort of first round, first first check-in typically. And at that point, you know, there's often not a lot to diligence on the the project. The project is usually not live, uh, so to speak, right? So initially, you're looking at white papers, you're looking at their vision for how it's going to get built, but you're really diligencing the people, right? And so I think that, you know, one of the things that was really impressive for us was the founders, David and Chris, uh, just unbelievable amounts of grit, very technically savvy, had a very clear vision for where this was going to go. And we were just really impressed with them, which is always sort of like the first criteria that needs to be satisfied. You know, the next thing that really early stage investors are looking at is, is TAM, sort of total addressable market. And the market for this is enormous. I mean, it's probably one of the largest markets we've ever invested in, because if you think about it, anywhere you type in a username and password, which is sort of everywhere uh, on the internet, is a potential use case for an access control list, a decentralized access control list like LIT. So that box was definitely checked. Um, we just saw that this was, you know, could be a, a critical sort of primitive or key piece of infrastructure in Web3. And then I think the last piece was just that the, the timing is right. So there's so many communities that have started to spring up, really particularly over the last 12 months as NFTs have taken hold and many of these communities are NFT powered. And it's just sort of like the right. So I guess we've been interested in the idea of access rights powered by tokens for for years. We were writing about this stuff in the context of security tokens back in like 2017, but there just hasn't been the right mix of enough sort of token powered communities that would potentially make use of this type of infrastructure really until the last six to 12 months. And so we just thought like, this is this is the moment for, for this sort of project. And so those are the key pieces. Exciting. And David, can you tell us a little bit about how you navigated the idea maze for Lit Protocol? Yeah, this is a, a pretty fun story. So about a year and a half ago, uh, Chris and I, uh, my co-founder, we were working on an NFT marketplace. We saw an opportunity to make something fully custodial, really easy for users. And for for weeks on end, um, and I think this is something a lot of people in crypto in general had a sense of, which is collectibles are really, really cool. And also this is the internet. There's got to be something more than collectibles uh, that, that one can do with NFTs. And about a year and a half ago um, on our daily standup call, Chris said, hey, David, look at this. And what it was, was an HTML5 NFT. So as you may know, an NFT is functionally, uh, most of the time, a pointer on the blockchain that's pointing to some external file. It could be a JPEG file, a movie file, or in this case, it was an HTML file. And uh, for some reason, I'd never considered that before. And I saw that and it was just an NFT that had some sliders on it for changing music. And there was a total kind of light bulb moment. It was just 
you know, metaphorically, I kind of fell into the NFT and was like, oh, wow, these NFTs are our browser windows. Um, and what we're looking at here is like the web 1.0 implementation of that. It's pretty clear that NFTs could have user generated content inside of them and could be locked and, and, and have an element of access control on it. So that first use case for decentralized access control became very, very obvious as something that would be really cool and could happen and would provide a lot of utility. And then the next obvious question was, what is the decentralized infrastructure that we need to build to be able to make that statement true? And it was the process of kind of like pulling on that thread where it was just like, oh, wow, the, the applications for decentralized access control as a uh, generalized service provider that, that's a decentralized network extend far beyond just locked NFTs. And that's, that's how we arrived at uh, what the service provides today. Right. And how would you say Lit Protocol is different from other projects that are out there? Yeah. So there's a few uh, folks that are doing like token gating in Discord and token gating content. And um, we're really friendly with a lot of those groups and figuring out how we can best work with them. Um, what's unique about Lit Protocol, and I'll unpack this in a second, is basically the capacity to do non-interactive decentralized dynamic identity-based encryption. And I'll, I'll, I'll break that down piece by piece. So the non-interactive piece means that, uh, well, actually I'll, I'll jump to the end. The most important piece is, is around the encryption. So there's other networks and tools out there that can validate whether somebody owns an NFT or not. Application developers can do an RPC call, essentially an API call down to the blockchain and check that themselves and, and grant access to given resources. And so some uh, application developers kind of are in a buy or build decision if they are provisioning access to some resource that they control. Now, the really interesting thing about the protocol, what makes it extremely unique is the capacity to grant a decryption key. Uh, so having that, that locked resource be living on public storage, but private through encryption, kind of adding um, a permissioned layer on top of open permissionless networks. And so to go back to that phrase that I used, the, the non-interactive piece um, basically means that I can set a bunch of uh, a conditions, whether I'm using a simple condition like user must own a CryptoPunk or something more complex that has Boolean logic associated with it. Somebody has to own a CryptoPunk or have more than 100 ETH in their wallet. Um, and I don't have to know who that person is. So if you think about the way that like end-to-end -end encryption works in the context of ProtonMail or Signal, you're basically taking the recipient's public address and encrypting your message with their key. So you have to know who that person is. This kind of uh, uh, leap to make it non-interactive, which is to say, I'm just defining a set of rules and then leaving it to lit protocol to grant the key in a decentralized way is, is a really unique way to be doing end-to-end -end encryption. And of course, the validation of the credential and the provisioning of the key is happening across a network of nodes. There's no one single key master here. So that's the decentralized piece. And the dynamic aspect is that token holders can change, DAO members can change as people are buying and selling, people are doing smart contract functions, updating lists. So again, that kind of goes back to the non-interactive piece. And then um, finally, on the identity-based encryption, identity-based encryption has been a hard problem to solve for years. Largely the way that identity-based encryption is solved today, which is like encrypting something to somebody's email address or phone number, or whatever it might be, requires a central key holder to do the provisioning. Being able to do that in a decentralized way is also something quite novel uh, that we're up to. Great. And 
And what you've talked about some use cases and what do you see as the big vision in the future? Where does this go? Yeah, this is my favorite question. Um, so right now we're talking about like decentralized encrypted applications and granting access um, to Web2 uh, experiences based on on-chain conditions. Um, but if we really kind of take a step back and look at like the, the multi-decade history of the internet, a lot of the inter early internet pioneers and, and, and to this day are still working on it, are working around uh, what some people would call like data self-sovereignty or private user data management. And this is kind of like a, a, a real vision for a different architecture of the internet. So if you think about when you log into something with Google or you log into, log into something with Facebook today, that third-party application is saying, hey, I would like to access your email address and your calendar and your documents. And then you as the user are saying, hey, Google, I would like to give this third-party consent to that data when you click accept or sign in. Um, but the real architectural shift and, and, and one of the things that's super exciting about decentralized technologies is rather than that Google, or rather than Google custodying that data and you saying, hey, Google, I consent to you sharing that information, individuals kind of owning that data in a, in a self-sovereign way. And there's generally two takes on this. There's, um, you know, Tim Berners-Lee has a project called Solid. There's also projects like Urbit, which attempt to solve this by a user renting a server from DigitalOcean or Amazon and then consenting out of that rented server. And then in the D-Web world, we have, a, I think, a slightly different take, which is use public storage quote unquote, own that, we call them a hub, own that data hub, not through a contractual relationship with some vendor, but own it through encryption and have the consent rules uh, be in smart contracts and, and do the key management with, a, with an access control protocol like, like LIP protocol. And I think we can kind of get into some of the implications around, around data self-sovereignty as well. Wonderful. Well, maybe um, Steve, I'll ask you to jump in here. And what elements of what David just described about the future resonate with you? And are there any that don't resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to double click on is, is just what he was describing around simple token gated access it is sort of solved. People have, you know, there's various projects that have um, gated access to, you know, as he said, to, to discords or certain types of content. Um, but the really exciting thing, and this is something that sort of Web3 is going to enable, is sort of complex um, token gated access, right? And if you think about it, you know, if you go back even outside of the context of, of Web3, even outside of the context of, of tech, when we wanted to deliver a message or we wanted to, you know, introduce people to a community, you've got very uh, broad-based ways to do that. So like you could put up a billboard, right? And like anybody who drives by the billboard is going to see that message, but like only a very, very small percentage, right? And then maybe you put that message in a particular type of publication, like the New York Times, or, or maybe you want to target like, you know, people that are really interested in science. So you put it in uh, sort of a scientific journal or something like that. But then, you know, as we've moved into Web 2, people realize like, oh, well, now, now we can target, you know, uh, people who are in Los Angeles between the ages of 15 and 25 or, you know, these sorts of things. But of course, what that means is those people have to give up a whole bunch of data, um, which sort of like facilitates that, that sort of targeting of, of messages. And so I think what's exciting about LET is that 
we're now going to be able to put all of these complex conditions. So it's like, hey, I'm starting the new community. And maybe, you know, again, it doesn't have to be the intersection. It can be the union of many types of communities, right? It could be anybody who holds a CryptoPunk, anybody who holds a board ape, anybody who has, you know, not just holding of assets, but certain types of behaviors. So anybody who has posted this sort of thing before, or like has interacted with these communities in certain ways, I think that's where we're going. But the difference is, you don't necessarily have to give up a bunch of personal information. It's going to be something that's sort of like uh, identifiable and verifiable um, through the history of on-chain assets and, and transactions. And I think that's something that's really new and something that we're really excited about. Right. And can you talk more, David, maybe about why this kind of decentralization is so important for access control? Yeah, I think um, uh, definitely can hit on that. And and, and just to also comment on what Steve was mentioning, like, um, I think that there's there's a lens by which our team is largely viewing what is happening in kind of the blockchain space. Like, of course, the blockchain is this decentralized ledger, and that's really great. And, uh, and, and there's a whole lot of implications associated with sovereign money um, and, and, and smart contracts. Um, but there's a perspective by which we're kind of looking at what's happening as thinking about the blockchain as essentially a database of credentials, whether it's actions or asset ownership or being listed in a list. And also what's really unique is, um, is that like now we're moving into a paradigm where people travel around the web with a, with a private key pair. And I just think there's, there's one kind of interesting comment here. Uh, there's a term from evolution called exhaptation. It basically kind of uh, when, is, is when evolution goes, what else can I do with this capacity? The classic example that people like to use is, you know, you had uh, dinosaurs that developed uh, feathers because they were cold to stay warm and they were jumping up and down in the context of, of trying to attract a mate. And that was the thing where evolution was like, oh, what else can we do with this feathery uh, organism jumping and flight kind of emerged from there. And in the same way, the notion of blockchains and decentralized levers kind of set us up with a lot of these components where there is this, this there is this open uh, credential database. People do have private keys and we can kind of ask what else is possible to do there. And now to come back to your question in terms of why decentralization is so important here is that um, it, it's for a couple reasons. One is that it makes these systems uh, robust. Um, so like uh, in terms of not having downtime, not being able to, not having to uh, like trust a centralized controller is really important, both in the context of, of uptime and making sure the system works. And also it doesn't take too long to see that centralized applications get hacked all the time. There, there is security in doing this in a decentralized way and not creating like a really juicy database with a bunch of really important information that hackers can try to, to get at. Um, and then the third piece of that, of course, is, is privacy. Uh, so the centralized kind of key master, um, you know, if you think about who like SSO providers in Web2, folks like Okta, you know, they have to go through SOC2 requirements and they have this laundry list of things that says, we won't access your data. And here's our various kind of command and control policies around how we think about the data in our database. And that's all well and good and definitely works for Web2. But in the context of Web3, Web3 
the design lens is to, to design from an adversarial environment. This was the whole kind of innovation around Bitcoin and solving the Byzantine generals problem and finding the balance uh, between incentives to create a new network in the context where all of the operators aren't necessarily friendly or trusting uh, each other. And that's just kind of uh, the prerequisite to designing for Web3, in my opinion. Right. And you've... Um... You've been thinking about deploying some pretty advanced technology in this area. What's it like for the developers that work with Lip Protocol? Uh, that's a great question. So we have a JavaScript SDK. Um, we've seen people implement Lip Protocol in as little as an hour or two to create token gated groups and, and, and things of that nature. I think Stripe is a really good example of a company that has taken a lot of complexity and abstracted it all away into single functions. And, and that's something that we admire and um, are following in our developer tooling. Um, David, you said that your team are really activist builders helping to create a more mature internet. Can you yeah. unpack that for us? Yeah, totally. I think there's a, a, a long arc uh, to kind of take a step back and think about this and the, what's happening in Web3. Uh, I, I don't think it's unfair to describe this moment as the maturity of the internet in the context of how it treats users and, and how it treats data. Obviously, like the Web2 platforms have provided enormous amount of benefit in terms of global connectivity, um, but there's, we've also seen the rise of things like surveillance capitalism. And then there's a whole discussion to have around the economic incentives of some centralized platforms to kind of anger and enrage people and, and in terms of kind of keeping them locked into the feed. And that is just predicated on the fact that the economic model of Web2 platforms is to hold as much attention as, as possible. That's where the revenue comes from. And in the context of people moving to decentralized systems, data becoming more self-sovereign, it gives people just more, more agency. And I think that that's a good way to, to think about maturity. Um, it's like you get your learner's permit or your driver's license to drive a car, you are maturing and you have a lot more agency over your life in terms of where you can go and whatnot. And uh, it's just, I think, a, an apt metaphor to describe the internet. One other thing to kind of extend that metaphor, this is a bit of a cognitive leap, but uh, like uh, toddlers, human toddlers, when they're about eight, nine months old, they basically develop something called object permanence, which, which means that they know that something is still there, even if they can't physically see it. Like when you play peekaboo with a baby, you're basically training them and teaching them object permanence. And to like have a slightly kind of uh, fun metaphor, you know, the internet only just achieved quote unquote object permanence when, when Bitcoin was invented and discovered in that like these assets can now exist in perpetuity without necessarily being watched, if you will, by a, a server that is maintaining them. Great. I think we've got some child psychology, you've got some evolution, you got some good metaphors in here. It's really eye-opening. So, and this is for either of you, um, how would these user-owner networks, user-owned networks work practically? Like, how, what does this mean for creators? And Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, broadly, you know, what we've seen really even before NFTs, so even with fungible um, networks, it, you can think about it where, you know, what does it mean to own something? I guess that's where I always start when I when I am teaching this stuff at the university. And, you know, if you boil down ownership, like, so before we can talk about user-owned sort of networks, you have to boil down, like, what is ownership? And when you boil it down, ownership is basically a set of rights. 
And those rights could be any number of things. Those could be the right to transfer it, like in the case of Bitcoin, right? Like you don't necessarily have governance rights if you're not a miner, right? If you just hold Bitcoin, you don't necessarily have access rights, although those could be built in. But like what you do have is the right to transfer it, right? So you can hold it and you can transfer it. And that ends up deriving a lot of value if there's a lot of other people that that desire that right as well. And then you can layer on all kinds of other rights. So if you own equity, right? So a, a sort of a, a corporation is owned by a variety of shareholders. And what, what sorts of rights do you get there? You get um, not only cash flow rights, you could sell it. Um, if they issue a dividend, you're going to receive the dividend. You also receive governance rights, which means you can vote. You can vote on representation on the board of directors. There are various proposals that might go all the way down to a shareholder vote. So you have both some governance rights and some cash flow rights, which you don't necessarily have as access rights. So if I own shares of Microsoft, that doesn't mean I can like wander onto their campus, right? And, and chat with their employees and whatnot. So then you move to tokens, right? So what sorts of rights do these things engender? Well, again, it could be any number of rights. It could be just the right to transfer it, but increasingly we're starting to see governance rights, right? So many of these tokens, that really is the main right, is the ability to help shape the network, govern the network, you know, direct how the network is going to evolve and what features are going to evolve. But increasingly, I think with Lit, what we're now seeing is the ability to layer on access rights, which is something that we really haven't had a ton of other than sort of like these simplistic gating mechanisms we referred to earlier. And in theory, as you add on more rights, the ownership should be, I mean, the value of the ownership should be enhanced, right? And so even if the token wasn't designed originally with access rights built into the ownership stack, now that you have the ability to layer on, you know, access to content, access to discords, access to shared documents, access to sort of anything that you can imagine we view that as like an enhancement of the ownership of these networks. And so I think that's just going to be a key piece of their evolution. I love that kind of lens in terms of um, the buffet of rights associated with ownership. And one other lens uh, I, I think that is, is, is interesting to think about in the context of, of user-owned networks in terms of kind of like the general capacity or, uh, and possibility that can be enabled by this through tokenized networks. Um, and, and user-owned networks is that if you think about applications that facilitate a marketplace interaction where they're paying a service provider and somebody is paying for that service, YouTube with content, Uber with drivers, uh, the, the individual who's the service provider, be it the driver or the content creator, is certainly getting compensated in a way for that specific service that they provide but as people in the venture community know, the real value of Uber and the real value of YouTube is in the network effects. And it is the platform that is essentially capturing 100% of the network effect value. Now, if those networks uh, are, are tokenized where people are earning for providing that service, but the thing that they're earning is also tied to kind of like the total diluted value or total market cap of that given token, all of a sudden... The, the, the circle of the parties that are being compensated for and, and by the, the network effects of the network is inclusive of the stakeholders that are providing the service, the service providers, the content creators, the drivers, whoever it might be. And that's, I, I think there's like 
really a wholesome momentum there um, in terms of addressing some pretty kind of key and important conversations around things like income inequality. Uh, granted, it's still quite early. There's a lot to figure out, but uh, a, a lot to be excited about there. Right. No, we love that idea of a more participatory ecosystem, right? And uh, that leads to a good question for Stephen, which is how do you see tokens disrupting VC, if at all? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's one we actually chat about a lot internally uh, at at Collab, which is sort of like, what is the what is the future of Collab currency? Is there a scenario where we become a DAO down the road? And, you know, what would it make sense to sort of like tokenize the fund and open up broader access? And, you know, I would say like we haven't really made a ton of decisions around those things. But what I would say is, you know, this phenomenon is not going away. We're pretty convinced about that. I think initially it will it will uh, complement VC as opposed to strictly disrupting. So, you know, we're also members of lots of investment DAOs. So we're members of the Lao and Flamingo and Neon and Red DAO and Alliance DAO and sort of all of these DAOs where, where we have collectively pooled capital. So we as a VC have pooled capital with builders, with other individuals, with other funds, you know, sort of to, directed towards a specific investment strategy that we think collectively we'll be able to tackle more efficiently than any one of us alone. And those have been really powerful. I mean, if you just look at what Flamingo has done in the NFT space, they've really become a leader in, in sort of like, you know, not only a thought leader, but just a leading collector. I mean, just by nature of the value of the assets um, that are that are in the portfolio at this point. And so I guess if you step back and you think like, what is VC, right? To, to think about whether it will be disrupted or not. VC is really just a channel for passive capital, say pension funds or endowments or these large pools of capital to direct resources, to direct capital into early stage innovative projects. Uh, the pensions don't necessarily want to be involved with the early stage projects directly. And so they empower VCs or they route the capital through VCs to sort of facilitate uh, that service. And, and I don't think that's going away. There's a lot of passive capital out there. Because again, what is a pension fund? It's just a collection of individuals that have all put their retirement money together because regular people have had trouble accessing venture capital. Um, it's just been like a coordination problem as well as a regulatory problem around accredited investors. So maybe a, a, you know, a school teacher in California can't individually invest in our fund but they can you know, pool their capital in a pension, which can invest in, in venture funds like ours. And so at the end of the day, it is regular people that are getting exposure to all of these early stage projects, but they're routing it sort of through these intermediaries. So then you fast forward to like, how, how do DAOs potentially solve that? You still have an issue around accredited investors, which I'm hoping we make some progress on here in the US. Um, you know, obviously those rules vary by country, but setting that piece aside, the interesting thing about DAOs is it sort of like bypasses a lot of those intermediaries in the sense that a lot of folks can now pool capital directly. And then that pooled entity, because really like what is a company, right? A company is just a money router. It routes inputs into outputs, right? So 
in the VC is the same thing. And a pension fund is really the same thing. These are sort of money routers. They're coordination mechanisms to route capital. And so now if we can do that more directly and we can use smart contracts to route capital and sort of like facilitate some of this trust that has been you know, challenging to come by, I would say, in, in other environments, it really does open up the spectrum for the ability of people to sort of pool capital directly without maybe using as many layers of intermediation. And that's what we're seeing with some of these investment DAOs. Now, I will say there are still a lot of things to figure out because some of those people still might want to be passive, right? And we see this in many of the DAOs we're in is like, a subset of the members, say 20% of the members end up doing sort of 80% of the participation. And there's a lot to figure out there around like, how are the more active participants going to be compensated? And like, you know, how do we measure participation? And and those are kind of things that DAOs are, are grappling with today. And I would say lots of ideas are out there and those things are going to readily be um, solved, we believe. Um, and we've got investments in other projects that are targeting DAO tooling and in all of these sorts of um, mechanisms that might make those things more feasible. But the concept of like passive capital being routed into early stage projects is still going to need people that want to participate, that like VCs, right? That want to get in there, help the projects with connections, help the projects think about go to market, help them with raising more capital, sort of help them with all the normal things that the early stage investors do. But is it possible that we start to see more of that take the form of, you know, DAOs as opposed to venture funds? I think, yes, absolutely. I think that's going to be like a rising segment of, of available capital for founders. Yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely what I'm seeing in terms of the type of inbound that we're getting, whether it's from kind of uh, DAOs or, or venture funds in terms of this new structure at the early stage. And then the only thing I would kind of uh, build on top of that is to say that like uh, the action for venture in the context of the tokenized world seems like the focus will kind of double down into the early stage, certainly to set up uh, a, a Web3 company, especially if you're using decentralized infrastructure and using the tooling around private user data management is kind of non-trivial. In terms of the shifts to the VC landscape, uh, rather than like certainly everything, I'm aligned with everything Steve said around the different channels for routing capital at the early stage. Um, I think there's like a very interesting thing that could happen to growth stage funds in the context of this newly emerging um, exit channel for projects, right? Like, as you know, right now you start a business, you can become profitable. That's really awesome. You can IPO where you may or may not be profitable, or you can be acquired. But with this fourth channel kind of emerging of exit to community, whereby you've got a platform, maybe build it in a centralized way, then you've done a migration and you've given uh, users private uh, con control over their private data and they've consented back to the application. So you're protecting them and then essentially turning your application into a tokenized public utility. This is something that um, I, I think could be quite disruptive to the later stage projects. And I've certainly talked to some founders who have turned down Series B term sheets because they say, that's not the direction we want to go in. We want to do an exit to community as our kind of next fundraising event, um, which uh, it's still a trickle right now, but uh, I think that could be quite disruptive to VCs in the context of, of tokenization and user-owned networks. 
Well, um, we've talked about some of the many benefits of tokenization, um, but what are some of the problems? Let's talk about the challenges. What's preventing more widespread adoption and how can some of these challenges be addressed? It's an interesting question because I actually do a whole session on challenges for Web3. And I'm teaching a course on crypto in the, in the master's program at the university right now. And I think there's there's a whole lot, right? So some are real and some are really more perceived or sort of imagined, right? So there's still, you know, a lot of narrative in the general public just around like illicit activity and sort of some of these things that have largely been sidestepped. And I think those who are close to the space realize are are, are really a very small percentage of transactions at this point, but there's just sort of like this sort of like some historical baggage, I would say, that the, that the space is still working through. I mean, another challenge that always comes up is sort of environmental impact. I have a million thoughts on that. I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of use cases now where, where the environmental impact is close to zero uh, if you look at a lot of the proof-of-stake chains. And, and even when you look at the proof-of-work chains, you know, I think a lot of that energy that's being used is renewable and non-rivalrous, certainly more than the, than the you know, popular press is, is giving it credit for. So I would say that's one category of challenges that, that like is commonly cited. I would say for those of us who are like really deep in the space, the, the challenges we, so I view those things as solvable, right? Like eventually the education will be out there that there's so many use cases beyond um, you know, sort of drug dealer money or or some of these like memes that that piece is going to get resolved. I do think the energy piece is largely going to get resolved either through the increase of, of utilization of renewables, which are now, I mean, the cheapest energy you can produce on earth is now renewable. That was not true a few years ago. And if you look at the incentives around mining, even if you don't have an environmental bone in your body, your incentive is to move to the cheapest source of energy. And so naturally it's going to move towards renewables anyway. So I don't view those as like long-term concerns. I would say the the things that we think are the biggest challenges, which really are areas for investment for us, um, because you know maybe we can help invest in some of the projects that are solving some of these challenges, are really the ones I mentioned earlier around measurement of participation. So if DAOs really are going to be the organizational form of the internet, and now we're going to have all these new tools like LET, right, to sort of like facilitate different types of access control to content and documents and all of these sorts of things, we have to have better tools to manage these organizations, and we have to have better tools to manage participation. So you know, we invested in Tribute Labs, which is building, they're the, they're the group that sort of manages, or uh, I would say administers more the Lao and Flamingo and Neon and sort of that open law ecosystem. They're building out tons of tooling. Tally is building out tools for DAOs to manage spending. Passage Protocol is working on, you know, measuring participation and sort of community management and how do we level people up as, as, we, as we see increased levels of participation. So I think those are the challenges that are sort of front of mind in terms of the things we need to solve are really mostly around governance of a lot of these systems. And I think there's still a lot of work to do there, but I do think there's a lot of people working on it as well. And I'm just curious, Steve, it didn't seem like you mentioned regulation. How do you think about regulation? Oh, yeah. Regulation is the PERMA challenge, right? <laughs> so, the, I, you know, the interesting thing, though, is 
I think for those of us that are located in the U.S., I mean, we're located in the U.S., we do end up kind of getting a very U.S.-centric view of regulation because, you know, we've got the SEC making noise and Fenson making noise and like issues in Congress, like with the infrastructure bill. and, And we focus a lot on U.S. regulation. The truth is the world is a big place and the U.S. is a very important market, but it really is only one market. And if you look at regulation evolving in other places, some of it is more stringent than the U.S., but in other cases, it's less stringent. And, you know, increasingly we're seeing protocols. So, you know, take one inch as an example, like one inch is a, is a market aggregator. Um, they geofenced off the U.S. And from what I understand, it didn't actually really impact their volumes that much. Right. And so what's going to happen, I mean, to the detriment of U.S. citizens is that if the U.S. continues to take a very heavy-handed approach to regulation, many of these projects and protocols will simply start geofencing off US users. I mean, it's already started to happen with airdrops where everybody else in the world was eligible, but not if you if you lived in the US. And so it's almost like, you know, in the spirit of investor protection, I think some of these things might end up harming investors um, more than protecting them. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I should have mentioned that as a challenge. I think it's specifically a challenge in the US and maybe less so in some other parts of the world. Um, but no doubt we could use a lot more clarity around that piece. And David? Yeah, um, I think one, one way to interpret the question is in terms of what are the challenges is ask what are the challenges to getting mainstream adoption for this tooling? I think Steve did a great job commenting on uh, like there's a long arc happening and some of the infrastructure is continuing to be developed. To me, I think there's two other key points to pay attention to, which is one, the notion of private key management, still non-trivial, still very kind of wild west. Uh, There's still a lot of education and learning to do around phishing and things of that nature. And how do you keep yourself protected and not scammed? And we have some thoughts on that in terms of some of the things that we're looking at. And then there's a, a, a stack of tools that are being developed to being able to be able to handle one's private keys in safe and, and non-custodial ways. And then the other side of it, and, you know, this may be a contrarian point, but like a lot of the things that have been happening in in blockchain aren't really 100% applicable to everybody yet. I I, I think it's getting there. I think one way to characterize kind of the first run of crypto is largely framed around the question of what is money Uh, that, that always came up when Bitcoin was going out. Okay, what is Bitcoin? But what is money? That's that's the really deep question here. And then in the latest run with DeFi and specifically around NFTs, uh, there was this whole conversation around what is art. And certainly that was applicable to millions of people, but there's many people who are just like, oh, art's cool. I sometimes see it, but that doesn't deeply resonate with me as an individual. Um, I think where we're headed and kind of, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the market and all of that. But uh, when the world's attention comes back onto crypto, it'll largely be framed on the question of, what am I as an individual on the internet in the context of you are what you own in the context of having private data and, and, and data self-sovereignty uh, that is only yours. And when that becomes the dominant narrative, and I, I believe that that's where we're headed, I think that's the inflection point around mainstream adoption, because that question of what is the digital version of me is, is applicable to every person with internet access. Yeah. And it seems like as Steve was mentioning earlier, everyone uses a username and password. 
and on, in many cases, right? And that system is kind of broken and um, could be rebooted. So very exciting. So um, what else in the Web3 world is exciting to you today? I mean, Steve, I'll start with you. Yeah, I can start with that. I would say, you know, the thing that's exciting to us is just that we're closing in, I mean, as David mentioned, on so many unlocks for broad adoption. You know, his, historically, people have really synonymized crypto with finance, right? So people focused a lot on what is the, say, the price of Bitcoin, and and these assets are all very tradable, and the rise of DEXs and DeFi and new forms of lending and new forms of trading and new forms of asset management. And we're fascinated by all of those things. I think me in particular as a finance professor is just like giddy about the sort of future of finance. But I think the big shift is that we're now seeing that the main use case is moving from trading these assets to using these assets, right? And and that's a big shift because I think it, 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 you know, to David's point, it's going to touch a much wider swath of humanity, and the ability to, I, I think, like you know, as we are increasingly getting closer to solving decentralized identity, decentralized access control, decentralized organizations, like these are things that are really going to touch you know billions as opposed to thousands or millions of people. And so I think those are the things that we're most excited about right now. Yeah, for me, it's definitely kind of, it's a slightly intangible thing, but it's really uh, the mood and the ethos amongst the builders. It would be totally possible to kind of have like copy and paste the power structure from web two and just, it happens to be running on decentralized infrastructure. Um, but I'm extremely encouraged and excited about the conversations that I'm having with um, web three entrepreneurs where there is, uh, there is a, 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 an ethos here around user networks, around user control, around user privacy. Um, and I think as, as, as long as that kind of flame stays alive in the context of people who are building out the next generation of Web3 infrastructure and Web3 applications, that's actually, to, to me, that's, that's kind of the keystone. Um, and so, it's not not to point to any particular piece of infrastructure, but like the general mood around uh, empowering individuals that has been a part of Bitcoin and a part of Web three and, uh, and 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 in groups of builders that I'm talking to is is definitely still kind of like going strong as a general mood and attitude and momentum, and that's that's the thing that keeps me so excited about this space. Yeah, it's exciting to see the talent flow into the Web3 ecosystem. Uh, so let's wrap up, um, pull out your crystal balls. Do you have any predictions for Web3 in five or 10 years, Steve? Yeah, I, you know, look, our, our longstanding sort of single prediction has been that everybody will have a digital wallet, that digital wallets will be as ubiquitous as email addresses or sort of other forms of communication. It'll be how you receive your payroll, it'll be how you pay your rent, it'll be how you access websites, you know, speaking specifically to, to the use cases that Lit is enabling. And it, it is like the digital wallet is sort of like the passport to this world. Like until you have one, you it, it's like you can't really participate in most of this stuff because the, the first thing you have to do is click the connect wallet button, right? And, and so I think 
that is the North Star that sort of guides all of our investments and where we see the world going is like, what does the world look like when virtually everybody has a digital wallet and sort of what sorts of things does that enable? And so I think the, the you know, that's really my, my single prediction is that that will happen and we think it will happen within a decade. So exciting. I, I tend to agree. I think uh, one other prediction, five, 10 year timescale would not be surprised to see a global scale user-owned network that is enabled with a lot of the infrastructure we talked around, around uh, private user data management, doing uh, a billion plus dollars revenue into their DAO treasury on, on a year-over-year basis. And I, I think that that's, that's quite feasible to happen in a five to 10 year timeframe. Well, exciting. And I'm going to take away from this, don't leave your homepage without your digital uh, keys and wallet, which you'll need in the future. Uh, But um, David and Steve, really, thank you so much for your time and your insights. We'll uh, see you again soon. Let's repeat this sometime. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Anne. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc.